You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning, Jeff and Weston and Bo. Thanks for sharing. It's really neat. I'm just encouraged sending out one group from us here amongst our other missionaries that we support. So, Bo, I'm pretty sure when you get back, you got the most of the sharing. <laughs> so they carried the weight today, right? So we're looking for a 20-minute recap there. Just kidding, Bo. Just putting you on the spot there. So. Well, we get to come to God's Word here uh, this morning again, open up to the book of Romans chapter 9. We're going into chapter 10, chapter 9, in particular verse 30 on your way there. I do have a picture from last week, and this is a bit of a recap for us because I got the name. So uh, this was that, that picture from Molly, has the pot of the right over the clay, you know, saying, why have you made me this way? Last week, I st- if you were here, I struggled to know whose picture was this. Molly came up sweetly afterwards, said, here's my picture, and it's Molly. So thank you for that, Molly, and appreciate all those pictures you turned in. Thanks for that. So the potter and the clay, why have you made me this way? And now we come to the end of chapter 9, and we're going to tie it in, we're going to st- Come along into chapter 10, all the way to verse 4. So, if you've got the scripture in front of you, let's read, let's listen to God's word, and then seek Him once again. Starting in verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do need your spirit and we need your help. And so as we come to your word and as we, as we think on these, these few verses before us in the context of all of your word and in the context of redemptive history and your eternal plan in Christ, would you, Lord, by your grace and mercy, guide our hearts to love you more today? through what we see in this gift of righteousness through Christ. Lord, I anchor us. uh, As one commentator talked about a harbor, Lord, give us a safe harbor for our souls in these particular words before us in the storms of our own sin and in our life. And we pray for your guiding hand in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. 
if you use an iPhone or maybe an Android, you've got a little, I think it's an emoji, I usually use it uh, to say got it or a, th- or a thumbs up. Uh, some of you, said, one of you sends pictures of a thumbs up, but that's kind of a, I got your message. If you ever do that, it's like an acknowledgement. When I was flying airplanes, to acknowledge you got the message, it would be, maybe you, you all know this, Roger, you know, not Roger, Roger, but Roger. Roger got the message, that sort of thing. You got this? Roger, I hear it. In the CB radio world, there's a lot of codes. There's the 10, 10 whatever codes. They're kind of, I don't know, two of them I know uh, memorized, but there's some, there's like a 10 7, 10 8, there's 10s, whatever, and they're 10 20. You ever heard, you know, what's your, what's your 20? Or a little radio lingo, where's your location, where are you at? But the one you're probably most familiar with is 10 4. And maybe you just automatically think 10 4, good buddy. I don't know why that's in there, but I just think of 10 4, good buddy. It's like a, I don't know, a trucker's thing or something. We know that. And and 10-4, if you look it up, you know, in the codes, it means, it means message acknowledged or message received. 10-4. I hope that that little, silly little phrase can help you remember, in particular, I think the highlight, all of this is God's Word, and then the highlight is, in fact, Romans 10-4. And a way to remember, where do I go when I'm thinking of the law and righteousness and where I am at with my Lord? that it would be 10-4. So there's a message in this whole passage for us to receive today. It's a message, really, that begins in eternity. A message from eternity. It's a message that involves God's mercy. We've been thinking about that in chapter 9. And it's a message for all who believe. And it's a message that calls for the abandonment of law-keeping for the sake of righteousness, and then the embrace of the one who is righteous. That message ends in Christ. So we want to hear that message and say, 10-4, message received and worship. Paul began, as we're kind of at the close of chapter 9, he began with a focus on his own kinsmen, on, on Israel. If you're Remember back. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, that sort of thing. But he made a statement in verse 6 here that not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. So not all Israel, considered Israel, actually belong to Israel. And then he went in to detail about God's sovereign election, the promises and the calling and God's mercy on whomever God has mercy, hardening whomever God hardens, those ideas in here. And then this calling of God, verse 24 says, a calling, it not only involved the Jews, that's the people of God we typically think of, but it also involved the Gentiles. And really, really the Gentiles are any nation that's not of Israel. And so we looked even last week, verses 25 and 26, where Paul seems to imply those that who, were, who were not of Israel, these Gentiles, God would call my people. You see it there in verse 25, or, or he will call beloved, or verse 26, sons of the living God. And yet these Gentiles, they didn't have the law per se, a law in the heart, but they didn't have the, the covenants per se, the patriarchs, 
All these things, but what did they have? That's what verse 30, as we look into our text, answers. Paul responds to what he said and says, what shall we say then? Or in light of this. Then he goes on, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. Paul says here, the Gentiles, they didn't pursue righteousness. You could put in the words, they did not run after it. They did not make an effort toward it. And yet Paul's implication here is they attained it. Attained what? Righteousness. So we might ask, how can this be? They weren't seeking it. How did did this happen? And Doug Moo, commentator, points out, Paul, he's already shown that faith is for both Jew and Gentile. We've seen that in a number of places here uh, in the book of Romans. But then he writes this. He says, Paul undoubtedly wants us to see the Gentiles' attainment of a righteous status with God without their having sought it as a specific and important example of the principle that he has enunciated in his previous argument. Here's the principle. Belonging to the people of God, to quote verse 16 of chapter 9, is not a matter of the person who wills or the person who runs, but of the God who shows mercy. As we close out chapter 9, this shouldn't surprise us that God works in surprising ways to save a people who were not even pursuing righteousness. But Paul's going to take a much longer section to really focus on his people, and we'll see that in a bit. But here we see these Gentiles have attained a righteousness, and it's a righteousness, you see it there, it's a righteousness by, that is by faith. Now, one writer notes Paul doesn't mean every single Gentile, but rather he's pointing to a people that possess the the character of being Gentiles. That is, not these, these not the people of God exercise God-given faith and thus are righteous or in right standing with God. They are, it's a familiar theme as we've seen in Romans, they're justified by faith, declared righteous in the courtroom of God. And it's through Jesus Christ. But from here then, Paul begins to look at Israel once again, his own people. And Israel who did not pursue righteousness. Actually, I'm sorry, they did, did, didn't they? They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they didn't succeed in it. Look at verse 31. That's what it says there. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. The Gentiles had not pursued, here Israel had. They pursued a a law, and that's interesting, that comes first, pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but again, did not succeed in reaching that law. I I think it's none other, if we think of this law, think of, I think, the law of Moses, the commandments laid out for the people of Israel, recorded in the law. If you look down at chapter 10, verse 5, I think you see this as well, where it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And so Paul implies in our verse 31 here that in the the doing and the working of God's law, Israel sought to make their way to righteousness. But the law 
Israel could not attain. Paul puts it this way, kind of a a, a bit of a parallel letter, Galatians. He puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So the law did not, it didn't lead to righteousness for Israel. And Paul's going to explain why over the next six verses here. He's going to explain it in kind of four related aspects in these, in these verses as we head down towards really our 10-4 verse here for today. So those four aspects. Number one, they pursued it by works. We're going to look at that. Number two, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Number three, they've got zeal. But they don't have any knowledge. And number four, they don't submit to God's righteousness. We'll look at the first one here in verse 32, just the first sentence of verse 32. So Paul says, why? Why didn't they succeed? They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They did not succeed. Paul says, why? And the first aspect here is because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In the Greek language, this particular sentence has no verb. And that may not mean much because I think even in our English, the verb is, is put in there for us. But in the Greek, it doesn't. And I think when that happens, when you don't have a kind of a verbless sentence, you have emphasis, an emphasis going on. An emphasis to, to ask and answer, why, why did Israel not succeed in attaining the law unto righteousness? Because they pursued it by works. They didn't pursue it by faith. So works are aimed at the law, doing, living according to the law. Let's do this, live this way, be right, whatever it is, and that ought to lead to righteousness. And works rely, if you think of works, what do they ultimately rely on? Israel may be looking to God, may be zealous for God, but ultimately those works rely on self. Paul talks about this in the wages of self in Romans 4. Verses 4 through 5, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So works turn one inward. Works to be in a right standing. How am I right with God? Let me work at it. My effort, looking to the law, even the law of God, my own deeds, my own merit, for my righteousness. Faith, on the other hand, turns out, outward, away from self, and it looks to the sufficiency of Christ alone. So works tend to, we focus in on me. Even, even we can look, we can tend to look at faith as a work. Well, how much faith? And we start to look at that. And where are we looking? Inward. True faith looks outward to the sufficient one who is Christ. But indeed, it's that Christ, it's that Messiah who Israel here had really rejected. Look at the second part of verse 32 and then into 33. They, Israel, 
they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I think when we think of this in normal language, we, tend to, uh, we might tend to think of uh, compassion for someone who stumbles. St- we think of you know, stumbling like, oh man, they kind of lost their step, or like that poor old man, he stumbled on the ice and fell, kind of a, a, a compassionate. This is a different kind of stumbling that we've got here. It's not just kind of tripping and, oops, I tripped over something. One definition goes like this. It, it refers to anger at an object in our path which we have struck and hurt our foot against. Or it is a person, or continuing, is a person or thing which highly displeases someone, like stumbling or hitting your foot against a very hard object. And if you've walked around your bed at night, particularly ours, it's low and it's just easy to hit the toe. And at that moment, you're not feeling compassion on the bed that has given you comfort for most of the night. You're feeling just, yeah, that hurts. And so there's this stumbling, the hitting your foot against a hard object like a stone. And so verse 33, Paul uses kind of a conglomeration of a couple passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, even I think Isaiah 49. And he brings out this idea of stumbling And really to show all of this is not new. It was predicted even in the Old Testament. You can use, if you've got a Bible with cross-references, you can use that, help you look at those passages in Isaiah uh, later, where Paul's grabbing these from. But who is this stone of stumbling? Who is this rock of offense? We know it's Christ, but I want to turn to 1 Peter 2 because I find it helpful here. So, Take a minute and find 1 Peter. So head to your right. Revelation, you're too far, and then come back to 1 Peter. And it's chapter 2, and I want to start at verse 4. Peter's going to quote, and we're going to say, wow, this sounds familiar. It's going to sound like Paul here. And it's so helpful when we say, man, I need a commentary. Help us. And the Bible provides its own commentary. It's wonderful. So look at first, let's look at verses 4 through 8. And then we'll look at a few others here. So 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Think of Jesus, that chosen, the beloved one, Son of God. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There's kind of our verses again. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is really interesting. The last line there of Peter 
in light of all the works that Israel was about, here they stumble because what? They disobey. I mean, I thought Israel, we thought, aren't they all about obedience? But they did not have the obedience of faith. Faith that looks to Christ. Instead, Christ is an offense to them. Stone they're stumbling on and they're offended by Him. And they reject really the only one who can save them. And because you're there, you see these words just at the end of the sentence, as they were destined to do. I think that's interesting. Even in Peter, we've got God's sovereign hand, again, predestining the stumbling and Israel's accountable for it. But then look at verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. This is going to sound familiar, isn't it? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we hear, again, echoes of Romans 9 and Hosea, where that Romans 9 is coming from. And so we come back to our passage today. Romans Back in 9, verse 33, the stone of stumbling, rock of offense. Jesus is that rock of offense to some. And yet, He is a stone and a foundation, a precious cornerstone that it says, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. We're going to see that again. Where is it? It's going to be in verse 11 of chapter 10. And we'll see that once again. Is that who Jesus is? Jesus is a rock of offense, stumbling to those who believe in him. No shame. Peace. Well, Paul continues as we now head into chapter 10 and verse 1. Chapter 10 now back in Romans, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here's Paul. Desiring the salvation of who? Israel. It's just like chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. They're, and we see it again. Here's Paul's his desire for his own people. This salvation for Israel to what? To look to Christ. That they may be saved. And what accompanies Paul's desire? If you look at it, if we read it fast, maybe we, maybe we miss it. My heart's desire and prayer. Paul is praying here. Paul, this is the same Paul, chapter 9. He just noted, what do you know? We saw the picture of it, the sovereignty of the potter to make out of this lump, you know, this one, and make out of the same lump this one. He's got mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. And yet, what do we find Paul doing? He's praying. And prayer acknowledges that God must save. So Paul, trusting in the sovereignty of God, doesn't say, you know what, fate, what will be, will be. We'll just go on. No preaching the gospel. No prayer needed. Paul prays. It's the means of God here. J.I. Packer writes a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. They're, They're together. It's not evangelism or the sovereignty. It's evangelism and God is sovereign. It's both. But he says this in regards to prayer. Just interesting 
as we're thinking of it in this section. He says, in prayer, you know that it is God who saves men. You know that what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. That's when we pray. He says, and the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. Thus, by your practice of intercession, no less than by giving thanks for your conversion, you acknowledge and confess the sovereignty of God's grace. And so do all Christian people everywhere. So this Paul, he's just taught Romans 9, on the right of God to do all of what he wills, this same Paul, he prays. He prays that, what do we all pray for? When we pray for the unsaved, when we pray for them to come to know Christ, Lord, draw them. Lord, work in their heart. We're praying for God to do the work that God only does. In fact, even Romans 8 that we looked at in the Spirit and in prayer, verses 26 and 27, we learn there, we don't know what we ought to pray for, how to pray as we ought. You remember that? But the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, and He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so Paul acknowledges by prayer here, God must save and God alone. All right, now look at verse 2. Paul says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They've got this zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. In fact, in Philippians 3, Paul talks about his own zeal. He had a zeal as well. His zeal was to persecute the church. That's what Paul's former zeal had been. And Israel has this zeal for God, but it's a zeal and it's not according to knowledge. One commentator, A.T. Robertson, he has some helpful words here as we think on this. He says on this knowledge, they had knowledge of God and so were superior to the Gentiles in privilege. But they sought God in an external way by rules and rites and missed him. They've got this knowledge of God, but they sought God in an external way by rules, rites, and missed him, they became zealous for the letter. You know, I think of the law. They became zealous for the letter and the form instead of for God himself. Zealousness itself is not a bad thing. John chapter 2 records when, they, when the disciples see Jesus overturning the tables in the temple area, they remembered, it says, they remembered that it was written that says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. But zeal without knowledge, right knowledge, is simply going faster down the wrong road. And if you're on the wrong road, no matter how fast you might travel, or your desire to get there, or how you drive, and you drive better than any, if you're on the wrong road, you're still on the wrong road. And Israel was on the wrong road to righteousness. Zealous, but not according to right knowledge. In fact, they were so confident that rather than submitting to God's righteousness, verse 3 is going to tell us they sought to, sought to establish their own. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. 
they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's Paul's his fourth kind of aspect or maybe a critique of Israel. Their pursuit was based on works. They stumbled over the stone, that is Jesus, who is the Christ. They had zeal, but it was apart from knowledge. And so here in verse 3, Israel sought to put in place their own righteousness and not God's. Specifically, God's righteousness where? In the person and the work of Jesus. This stone of stumbling who is the cornerstone. So their obedience was not an obedience of faith in Messiah, but faith in the law leading to righteousness. The law, not Christ, became the rock for them and for righteousness. And that rock will not hold. It's a false rock. Well, Paul counters all this in verse 4. Because here in 10.4, we gaze our eyes on Christ. That's what we need. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of the law. There's, there's some debate. What does it mean? Christ is the end of the law. What's this word mean? A couple think perhaps it means Christ is the, the goal of the law. Or the law terminates. It ceases with Christ. That idea. It's hard for me not to see Matthew 5 or 17. Christ himself says, you know, it came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. So Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the, the goal of the law. Whatever, whatever exactly end means, what's it tied to? Christ. He is the end. I want you to think that this is, I want to be careful, backed up, you know, with, didn't see this in the commentary, so whenever that's the case, I should be, you know, word of caution, check the scriptures on this. But I find this interesting in helping us think of end here. What's Christ? What's this end of the law? And it comes from the Greek word here in verse 4 for the end. It's the Greek word telos. Telos. You don't need to know anything other than telos. Not like tell us something, telos. Maybe that's where we get telephone from. I don't think so. No, it's not that. Okay. Uh, it's tell us. But it's part of a word group that encompasses fulfillment, tell us, completion, or we've got end here in verse 4. A little Bible trivia. In John 19.30, we read it on Easter Sunday morning. Do you remember Jesus' last words on the cross in John? He says the words, three words, it is finished. Maybe some of you, you've heard the Greek word there before. It's the word tetelestai. Here we've got telos in verse 4 of our Romans 10. Jesus on the cross says tetelestai. It is finished. Is it not there where Jesus says, it's, I'm at the end. It's complete. It's fulfilled. The goal, it's me. It's what I've done. It's what I'm doing. It's finished. James Montgomery Boyce comments, he makes a comment on Psalm 22. If you, if you look to Psalm 22, you see a lot of references, I think, to the cross there. At the end of Psalm 22, there's a little phrase, um, he has done it. And I think there's some connection to Christ saying on the cross, it is finished. But here's what Boyce says 
regarding the cross. He says, and this, what is finished there. He says, what is finished is the atonement by which the righteous demands of God for sin's punishment have been fully satisfied. Our sin, our waywardness, our rebellion against God deserves punishment eternally in the lake of fire. Montgomery Boyce says the atonement, the righteous demands of God for that punishment placed on Christ. And then he says, and the righteousness of God is now freely offered to all who will believe on Jesus. Paul's made it clear, Romans 3. Remember that? None is righteous. Is there one? Paul says, no, not one. And then he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified or declared righteous since through the law comes this knowledge of sin. I want you to look back, since we're in Romans, just look back to chapter 3. And I want to read a couple more verses in light of what we're studying here today. Think of this, Christ, He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, and I want to read through 31 and just hear what Christ has done, the righteousness of Christ to us. And we have no reason to boast in us but in the Lord. So Paul says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation a wrath satisfier by his blood to be received by faith let's see a mention of works there do you this was to show God's well there's work it's Christ not us this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so Paul asks, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify or declare righteous the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Jesus is the righteousness of God, and so to all who are in Christ. Some have seen our phrase where we're working with in Romans 10.4, they've seen this phrase, the end of the law, maybe a scene of kind of, I think it's like an athletic racetrack and the, and the finish line. And Christ is the goal of the law. He is. He's the fulfillment of the law. He, he stands at the end of the race. He's, he's the victor. 
yet perfect obedience, perfect sacrifice. And so this gospel is for all who believe. It's for those who believe, for those who stop running on their own track. I will get there, maybe. Some keep following, keep doing. Their own track of works righteousness, seeking to be right with God. Maybe one day I'll just I'll get it right, I'll get the day right. And what, what happens in that? We establish our own righteousness. All who look by faith to the true victor, to Christ Jesus, are counted righteous in Him. Well, as we <clears throat> close this, perhaps maybe we can hear Paul again say, what, well then shall we sin because Christ is the end of the law? No, that, that misses, I think, what faith in Christ, what, is all that, what does it mean? Coming to Christ is an acknowledgement that we are unrighteousness. We have filthy rags. And we see God's righteousness. And we see in this law where it, where it reveals to us our sin, we see our sin in it. And we say, I want to be right with God. How do we get right with God? More works, more doing. It's coming to Christ. Acknowledge, we trust Lord Jesus in your finished work on the cross to be that propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God. And that by the one man's obedience, that is Christ, we might be made righteous in Him. Counted righteous in the courtroom of God. I encourage you, remember Romans 10.4 today. 10.4, message received. It's a message we need over and over again. We need it repeated. As, as Milt read from Second Peter 1, talks about you've forgotten that you've been cleansed. And we forget our salvation and our righteousness is in Christ and not our doing. We bear fruit. We do good things. We honor as the Spirit works in us and we reflect that we are indeed in Christ, children, slaves not, no longer to sin, but slaves to righteousness. But our foundation and our righteousness is not in us, but in Christ. When we, fail, when we establish our own righteousness, we fail in this way. We fail to exalt and magnify the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. When we try to work for this salvation and do our own way and try to get it right, we really diminish the worth and the glory and the sufficiency of Christ Himself. Romans 10.4 Good buddy, listen to it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Take your law keeping and end it with Christ. He's righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord, to see you, to be given eyes to see out of ignorance and lack of knowledge is a gift of you and it is your mercy to open up blind hearts to see our, first to see our sin and then to see our Savior. And we just acknowledge, Lord, in all this is your gracious gift to us who did not deserve it. 
Father, we pray we would not be like the example, the verses we've read of Israel who sought to establish their own righteousness and our own camps and our own doing and our own working, that somehow we can attain this righteousness on our own for we cannot one minute attain it. And when we try, we detract from your magnificence in Christ. We're really not worshiping Christ in those moments. So Lord, I pray we would worship you with the obedience of faith that trusts you for our righteousness, that you're the end of the law. And there's good uses of the law. and There's fruit-bearing. There's spirit-led living. We're to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, Paul will say in Ephesians. Help us to walk that way. But Lord, may we be walking on the right track. Not on our own athletic track, running this race, beating ourselves, trying to get it right so we can have victory. But Lord, whoever believes in you will not be put to shame. You're our victor. You're our propitiation. You're our righteousness, Lord Jesus. May you grow us in a love for you and in this and in a knowledge of a righteousness that is by faith in Christ. I pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.